Sportsnet 590, the fan, the fan morning show, Daniele Franceschi alongside Jesse. Yes, sir. Hour two, Jesse. We made it through the 6 a.m. hour. That's usually the the one that, you know, especially adjusting to the time slot. Oh, I'm I'm ready to go. You're you're fired up now. You've settled in. Yeah. Good energy. I can see your eyes are wide open, even with the cornea scratch. (laughs) Cornea scratch. (laughs) Yeah, I'm playing hurt. Uh, Obviously, you can't see it. But (laughs) taking my contacts out, just, I guess, like UFC'd myself and... (laughs) My, my right eye is extraordinarily yeah, red. You at look the like Volkanovsky. For the guy that fought a, a fight, he, he looked really pretty, He came good. away pretty clean. That? He was very, so, very. So good. usually I'm I I do watch all these yeah. things. I'm on top. I did not watch that card. I do know he won. There was the interesting Adesanya uh, when he hopped in the octagon ridiculous. with Duplessis, yeah, which that is was, wild. That was ridiculous. Uh, we can. I mean, we can park that for a bit. But let's bring in Aaron Rose, Raptors reporter for Sports Illustrated. Aaron, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Oh, our pleasure, sir. Thank you for waking up and joining the show mm-hmm. for us here this bright and early Monday morning. Busy weekend for the Raptors, actually, interestingly. Of course, we got NBA Summer League that tipped off. The first look at Grady Dick and company, even the coaching staff, their first time running an entire game and practice and training camp sort of as as a, as a crew. Uh, let's start with Grady Dick. Aaron, your first impressions after two Summer League games. And let's try and forget maybe the first two summer league games. The first one was uh, not great for Grady Dick. And the second one was a little bit better. He made some shots. I think he had 11 points yesterday, but not a lot so far to be super excited about. Uh, it's, you know, we'll, we'll have all our summer league caveats that it is just summer league. And uh, I'm sure there's more games to be played that he will look better in and a long rookie season ahead. But so far, nothing crazy, nothing disastrous by any means, but uh, hasn't been a great showing for Greg Dick in summer league so far. I look at the way he plays and something that sticks out at least when watching summer league, he's not the type of guy that's going to take over a basketball game, right? He needs to rely on other guys to help him out with spacing and passing and free him up a little bit so that he can get his shots off. Do you think that just playing with, with guys who haven't played together before and not establishing the chemistry that he will eventually have with the Toronto Raptors is kind of working against him because once he gets into practice with guys and he's able to establish sort of a relationship and get a feel for how they play, that's going to be a lot better for a guy who's a shooter and relies on getting to his spots and then getting the ball from those guys. And you would think with those better chemistry and better passing and all that stuff with the big club, essentially, he would look better. All of that makes sense. At the same time, though, the other team is a lot better, right? The competition at the NBA in the regular season is also a lot better. So I think you could sort of make arguments either way. That being said, you know, he's the focal point of the offense. He's a problem. In theory, should be the best player on the court. And I think one of the things I've noticed with him is teams are really running him off the three-point line. And that's something that we'll probably see in the NBA regular season this year. It's just because he's such a good shooter, he's going to be forced to take a ton of mid-range shots because teams are just going to close out so tough on him, so hard on him to make sure he doesn't get that three-pointer. But maybe if Pascal Siakam's throwing the kickout pass, it's not as easy to close out because teams are focused on Grady Dick. They're focused on Pascal Siakam yeah, exactly. or Scotty or what have you. So you could definitely make that argument. Again, that being said, the competition is also a lot better in the NBA regular season. Yeah, I agree. I think also, and, and I think watching these two games, a little uninspiring in, in terms of the shot creation ability. I mean, there's a clear flaw, and I felt vindicated in some ways because I, I was a fan of them selecting Grady Dick and they satisfy a need and he can clearly shoot the basketball. There's no doubt about that. 
But in terms of there's there's a lot of raw elements to his game. Like I think it's pretty obvious some of the flaws are there. It's the the, the ball handling, the the shot creation off the dribble himself, and there's there's a lot of things now. The positive spin would be, to your point, when they when he gets into an NBA environment, just the threat of him being a floor spacer helps the offense as a whole because now you got to pick your poison. If there's whether it's uh, Scotty Barnes or Pascal Siakam driving down the lane, are you going to help? Or are you going to are you going to stay with the shooter? And if you help, then you got to you're going to get hurt and burned from a guy who's a, a good three point threat from the perimeter. What do you think is uh, the biggest adjustment that he needs to make in order to make it to look more fluid? Because I, I found there was a lot of moments of awkwardness from him at times. And it's only two games. when We won't overreact. But I felt like there were some moments where it kind of looked a bit awkward for Grady Dick out there. I think he talked certainly after the first game about just being nervous or being excited. And I think there was, there was a moment where he got the ball came to him in the corner and it just went right for his hand. And that you have to think for a guy who is a really high level shooter and played in a really high level conference at Kansas is that's not something that just happens regularly. So I think that was probably nerves. I think he airballed the three pointer. I can't imagine we're going to see that a lot. There were, I've noticed a lot of his jumpers have been short and that's something that he's going to have to fix. And maybe that is just nerves, but that's probably a little bit more strength in your base. And then it's just, as you mentioned, his, his dribble isn't that refined right now. I was speaking to his coaches recently. He said, if there's one thing, that's probably what he could work on uh, coming around ball screens. I think he did it once the other day, uh, a handoff with a big and made the jumper, but still, those are the kind of things he's not going to be a point guard for this team, even though they could use one. Uh, but he's, a guy that needs to learn how to dribble a little bit better, a little bit more refined. I think we'll see that right away, but also will take some time uh, to really develop into a truly, you know, more well-rounded NBA player. The game yesterday they played was just a, a terrible eyesore. Like that game just stunk. But I think if you're looking for positive spins through the first two games of the Raptors summer league, Marquise Noel probably is number one Raptor fans and fans of basketball got a taste for just how good he could be. Especially when you look back on the way he played at the the NCAA tournament, he was awesome. He's got vision. He's got playmaking ability. uh, Lots of very, very early comparisons being made to Fred Van Vliet in the sense that he's undrafted undersized and obviously a good story. Is there a pathway here for Marquise Noel to make this team that is in dire need of a point guard, to say the least? So I will start by saying everything, echoing most of what you just said, which is he looked incredible in the first game, even in the second game when his shot wasn't falling. A really good pass, right? He didn't have that many assists, maybe three assists yesterday, but I think that was because just guys couldn't make shots. I think they had like five for... 31 from the three-point range. So he's still a really, really good passer. But it's just hard for me to buy into a five-foot, seven, five-foot, eight-point guard right now. I would love nothing more than to be proven wrong on this. But there hasn't been a player shorter than five-foot-nine, at least listed, in the NBA in over a decade. And there's a reason for that. NBA players are really big, they're really fast, and it's just really, really hard. And I think we saw that a little bit in game two, which is I think he had two shots that were smothered at the rim when he drove, he just couldn't get it off. And then if his shot, his jumper, isn't falling, and you're going to have to take deep pull-up three-pointers if you're five foot seven, if it's not falling because those are tough shots, then you're really sort of handcuffing yourself. So uh, I'm a little skeptical. He's on a two-way. He's an undrafted guy. So 
there's a way, I suppose, that he could make this roster. And I think he'll, we'll see him play some minutes with the NBA club this year. But right now, he's still like a fourth point guard and a guy who I think will get a ton of run in the G League. But the G League's a developmental league, and this guy is a little bit older. I think he was a fifth-year senior. He's not going to grow in the G League. So there's some questions I have. But, again, as you mentioned, I don't want to crush this guy right now. A great skill, good story, and a guy who's probably been uh, the best part of summer league so far for the Raptors. Speaking of growth, Aaron, he's not going to grow literally or figuratively, unfortunately. That's, <laughs> that's the thing in the G League. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. I, I, you won't find a bigger fan of Marquise Noel than me because that guy put on probably the best point guard display I have seen at an NCAA tournament in a long, long, long time. That guy was unbelievable for Kansas State, and the vision is there. It's at a completely high level, but... And naturally, the size is, is a problem, it's, and it's a factor in all of this, and it's part of the reason why a guy like that, even though he was so exceptional collegiately, isn't, isn't drafted and isn't a, you know, a guy that's in the conversation for being drafted. Um, one other guy I wanted to vouch for, and I'm very curious to get your opinion on this too, Moses Brown. Moses Brown strikes me as a guy that should be on the Raptors' radar as someone that can be on their roster and and go to training camp and fight for a roster spot. Would you agree with that? Because I think I think he's been outstanding. He was really, really good in the first game, and we mentioned how good Marquise Noel was. I think part of Marquise Noel being so good is that the two of them had this connection. They were running the pick and roll really well. Uh, I think he's seven foot two Moses Brown. So you saw that size. I think he had three blocks in the first game. And then that second game, he didn't play well spectacular by any means, but he only had 10 minutes. And I was wondering, what's going on here? Yep. Maybe the Raptors are, are keeping his minutes low so that they can sign him later. Hmm. You know, that's just a conspiracy. I don't know what's going on, but he certainly caught my attention that, now, it was an ugly game, but he caught my attention that he only played 10 minutes or, or you know, 10 and a half the other night. So I don't know what was going on there, but certainly a guy that looked really, really good in the first game. And the NBA, with the new collective bargaining agreement, has added a third two-way spot. So maybe it's an opportunity to bring in a guy like that into training camp and fight it out for that third two-way spot. So the Raptors already have two bigs on the roster in Jakob Pertl and Christian Coloco. But if one of them were to go down, it's helpful having another seven foot two guy on the roster as a two way guy. So certainly a guy that caught my attention in the first game and we could see him in training camp with the Raptors this year. That's a great point too about the the minutes and how they kind of suppressed his minutes yesterday a little bit. And it's funny because if I, I it was Terrence Davis when he, he played one summer league game, went off signed a contract immediately. We didn't see him again the rest of the summer league. And who knows, maybe that's part of the calculus in terms of if, to your point, could be, we're speculating, but it could be part of the equation in terms of them, how they utilized him yesterday. I just thought he was really impressive, and I, I think he could, des- deservedly so. This is a guy that has some pedigree too, so I thought he he earned and merited some uh, recognition based on how he performed in the first two games. Speaking of Aaron Rose, Raptors reporter for Sports Illustrated, Daniele Franceschi, Jesse Rubinoff here on the Fan Morning Show. Wanted to pivot a little bit, Aaron, talk about Scotty Barnes. We saw Scotty down there at Summer League in Vegas over the weekend. He was on the broadcast, an interview by Chris Haynes and he talked about and he hinted at it hey I'm going to have the ball a lot more in my hands here running some high pick and roll action even through that and that in there specifically um, what do you expect in terms of the usage and deployment of Scotty Barnes going into next season the ball will be in his hands a lot more that's something I guess he said that's something Darko Rakovic has said I'm not sure I'm so excited to see a lot of high pick and roll not a lot of spacing 
spacing if he's running that with Jakob Pertl, considering they're two guys who don't shoot the ball very well. But I certainly think we'll see a lot more of the ball in his hands this year. But I just want fans to be ready that this is this, he's not a point guard right now. And there are going to be a lot of bumps if he is the starting point guard or something like that this season. So um, a guy who last year struggled early in the season as a point guard, I see him right now, or at least based on last season, as more of a playmaking big. Uh, these are going to be very you know, crazy names to throw out there, but more of a, a Nikola Jokic, more of a Sabonis, a guy who you throw the ball into the middle of the offense and playmate, but not necessarily someone that's, running the pick and roll, not necessarily someone that's orchestrating the offense as a traditional point guard. So that's going to be an adjustment for him. The Raptors, I completely understand why they want to do this. Their plan was not to let Fred Van Vliet leave. Fred Van Vliet left. They can't replace Fred's minutes with Dennis Schroeder's minutes. So they're going to see what Scotty Barnes can do. And when you're in your third-year player, it makes sense to give him the ball and see if he can sink or swim. But I just want fans to be prepared that there will be bumps in the road this year because Scotty is not right now a ready-made NBA point guard. But that's certainly what we're probably heading toward this year. So if he can't have the ball in his hands the whole time, like is, do you think he starts game one of the regular season as their starting point guard, so to speak? Because that doesn't seem like Dennis Schrader is going to be the guy that's the starting point guard night one, at least to me, it feels like he is more of a bench piece, but they don't have a starting point guard at this current point in time. So yes, well, Scotty might have the ball in his hands a little bit more. Do you think they go out and dress that or are they just going to be comfortable with having a mix of guys like Scotty, like Pascal, like OG having the ball in their hands a little bit more. And that's sort of how the starting unit is going to operate, I guess less than ideal, but that's what they have currently. Jesse, I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> I don't know. Makes sense, man. Makes sense. I, I think we've seen this team, certainly I go back to the playoffs a couple of years ago against Philadelphia, where when Fred went out, they ran sort of that jumbo lineup, that big boy lineup. Now, the addition of Jakob Bertel has made the spacing even more clunky because you're taking out, you're, you're taking out who, whoever was the starter. I guess that was probably Precious Achua, if memory serves. Or, but you're putting in excuse me, it was probably Gary Trent Jr. But you're putting in a guy who doesn't shoot. So the spacing gets clunky when you're running that sort of big boy lineup because Scotty's not a shooter. Pascal's an inconsistent, but I wouldn't really call him a shooter. And then you have Jakob Pertl who's not a shooter. So in the NBA, it's really tough to have three guys who aren't shooters on the court together. But if the future of this team is we're going to give Scotty the ball all the time, we're going to have OG the ball all the time, to me that's a little bit nerve-wracking. And certainly Gary Trent Jr. is not a prolific passer by any means. So I could see the Raptors starting those guys because those five guys are their best five guys. But at the same time, they brought in Dennis Schroeder and maybe let Dennis Schroeder start some games. It, I don't have the answer right now. We'll probably have to see how it plays out. And I could see them start, starting Scotty Barnes as the point guard and then a few games into the season or a month into the season saying, okay, we need a traditional point guard out there and we need to shake things up. So, uh, And then as for going out there and addressing the point guard position, Unless we're talking about a Pascal Siakam trade or something of that similarity, mm -hmm. there's no way to address the point guard need unless we're talking about Marquise Noel. Like the only option is to sign somebody to a minimum deal, and you're not signing a minimum guy to start for an NBA roster right now. It's just so bizarre because they're bottom five team in, in the NBA in terms of shooting last year, yet here we sit, and they're probably going to run back 
what is a very similar starting lineup with probably worse shooting, if anything. So it, it doesn't really make a, a ton of sense to me. But we talk about the, the subtraction of Fred Van Vliet. Now, it, it's obviously going to have an impact on the court, but an impact off the court as well, uh, considered by many to be a, a leader of this team, leader of this franchise. Uh, but when you talk about the reports last week that came out that Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam maybe at times of the season were upset or frustrated with the younger players. We had the spat between Thaddeus Young and Scotty Barnes in warm-up. Now, you were around the team a lot last year, obviously. It, it, they clearly didn't gel uh, on the court, but how was the vibe different last year off the court versus other years that you've been around the team? So first of all, I want to credit Sportsnet's Michael Grange for that report. So yep. some, some good reporting from Grange on uh, all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But I think there certainly was some tension between those older guys and some of the younger guys. We saw it at times on the court. And you could just feel around this team that there was a divide. That being said, and I think Lewenberg mentioned this uh, at one point in the season, that teams don't always love one another. And you go back to the championship team, and there were questions about the chemistry off the court in those guys. But who cares because they won a championship? So some of those things get blown out of proportion when you're losing. And I think Grange noted that is when you're losing, the guys who hate each other really seem to hate each other. And everyone blames it on hate probably the wrong word, but guys blame it on the chemistry. And when you're winning, those things don't really matter. But I think when it comes to the younger guys, at least my perspective on it is when you're talking about guys like Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam, two guys who certainly with Fred's story have come from being an undrafted player and Pascal Siakam is a NBA most improved player. So two guys, it's tough to question their work ethic and their developmental stories. Two guys who have played key roles in championship team or a championship team and two guys that I never thought I would say this about Fred Van Vliet, but here we are two guys who have earned max contracts. So you cannot question these two guys. And to me, the way I look at it is say, if you're a rookie, and you're, if you're a younger guy, excuse me, and you don't get along with Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam when it comes to development or leadership or work ethic, maybe that's on you because I have to look at these two guys and say, they've overcome all the odds. They're two of the best developmental stories we've seen in a long time in the NBA. I'll mention Jokic here as well. They're two guys that have won championships and they're two guys that have come earned max contracts. And if you're an NBA player, I think that's the dream uh, career arc playing out. So generally speaking, without knowing exactly what happened, uh, I, I tend to side with some of the older guys. And I think that we could see years from now, some of those younger guys might say, you know what, Fred was right. Or who are those veterans that you looked up to? You know, I really butted heads with Fred when I was younger. But looking back on it, he was right. When they're five years older and looking back on their careers, or not necessarily looking back, but mentoring some of the other guys. So I think it just takes time for guys to learn and to mature in the end again, I think that's something we saw with the Raptors last year. I feel like there are a lot of guys that would say that about Kyle Lowry too, right? How many yeah, of the, the guys sure. that came up in Definitely. the system with the Raptors and Fred Van Vliet is a product of that too, so who knows? I think that's part of the equation. Speaking with uh, Aaron Rose, Raptors reporter for Sports Illustrated, uh, Daniele Franceschi, Jesse Rubinoff here on the Fan Morning Show. Aaron, one more for you from me at least. Uh, Pascal Siakam, we've, we kind of touched on him here and there. Of course, he's the big domino for the Raptors right now in terms of what happens if he stays, if he goes. At any rate, I think, would you agree that this is a pivotal offseason in terms of at least making some sort of decision, whether you're extending him and keeping him or you're making the decision to pivot away from him? This feels like the appropriate time to do so. 
every time we talked about it, it's a pivotal point for the Raptors. They seem to kick the can uh, down oh, they a little bit do. longer. We were like, oh, it's a pivotal <laughs> trade deadline last year, and then they just sort of held the status quo. So they could. I, I so sorry, I would agree with you that it seems like a pivotal time where they need to make a decision on Pascal Siakam. But if they wanted to, they could play it out until next offseason or until the trade deadline. So with this front office, it's hard to get a read on exactly what they'll do. But as Grange has been reporting, it's awkward around Siakam. It sounds like the Raptors haven't had extension talks with him right now. And all this talk about the ball is going to be in in Scotty Barnes' hands next year, it feels like it's becoming more and more of Scotty Barnes' hands or of Scotty Barnes' team. And that means two things to me. Number one is... He's not a great fit alongside Pascal Siakam. If you really want it to become Scotty's team, the, the clunkiness of those two playing alongside one another might make it a good time to move Pascal Siakam. And then the other thing is, I go back to when Kyle left, and Pascal was saying, like, I wanted to be the man, and you couldn't be the man while Kyle Lowry was here. And even if you're better than Kyle Lowry, and that's Scotty Barnes not better than Pascal Siakam right now, but Kyle still carried a lot of weight around this organization, rightfully so. And he needed to move on to Miami for Fred and Pascal to take over and step into that spotlight. And I think we're getting to a point, and you, you have to hope that Scotty Barnes gets to the point where he's every bit as good or better than Pascal Siakam. And one of the ways to do that would be to move on from Pascal Siakam. It's a tough conversation to have about a guy who has been you know, the number one guy for this organization for a few years and a champion for this team. That being said, it would make sense to me to move on from Pascal Siakam, but it's tough to get a read on what this organization is going to do. I think one thing's for sure, the rumors are going to persist, and it's going to persist until we get some kind of resolution at some point, whether it's he's on the roster opening night, there's a trade, there's an extension of some kind. Either way, he's going to want to get paid and compensated. I think ultimately that's where the direction we're going, regardless here, is he's eligible for the extension, he wants the extension, and we'll see how it all shakes out. Aaron, appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thank you for hopping on with us, and I hope we can do this again soon. For sure. Thanks for having me on. Aaron Rose, Raptors reporter for Sports Illustrated. I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff there, Jesse. I thought, I thought, and I think particularly when it comes to the Scotty and Pascal Siakam dynamic, this is one of the things that I have been most curious about. If you keep these two together, can they coexist on the same team? And can Scotty Barnes achieve his full potential with Pascal Siakam on the same roster? Feels like we're reaching peak 6-9 experiment. <laughs> like that's that's just where we're at right now because if I, I I was hopeful they would abandon it. <laughs> if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna try and keep the band together and you're gonna have the ball in all of these guys' hands more, like the reality is, this is something that doesn't happen all the time where you have the ball. Scotty Barnes bring it up, Pascal Siakam. We've seen it in spots over the last couple of seasons, but I don't think we've seen it to the degree with which we're going to if they don't go out and get a point guard. So you're looking at a situation here where they're continuing the experiment unless they make a move for Pascal Siakam uh, to to trade him away. And at this point, I don't think that that's something that's really going to happen because he, he destroyed the leverage that the organization yes, had when he, he said that he wasn't going to re-sign long-term anywhere else other than Toronto. So we're kind of in this spot here where the Raptors don't seem that intent on re-signing him. Because they haven't offered, it doesn't sound like they've offered him a contract. <laughs> Correct. But at the same time, he says he's not going to resign elsewhere. So, what 
do you do if you're the Raptors? I'm not really sure where they think they can take this thing. So maybe it's just see how the season plays out, see if he can bring his value up a little bit more, and then eventually you make the move if the team isn't super competitive. They just had a guy walk for nothing. Yeah. And I, I, I was hosting with uh, Matt Marchese on Wednesday. I know you had a couple shows with Maddie yeah. last week too. I was with Maddie on Wednesday afternoon, and I... And I delivered a good little tirade about how I thought it was the Raptors got exactly what they deserved and it was the most um, irresponsible move that this front office could have made. The fact that they didn't trade him when they had the opportunity to recoup assets and how, quite frankly, it's actually a lot different than even what William Nylander is going through right now with the Toronto Maple Leafs, given the timelines of these two teams. Mm. I would say to go through this again, where you have a guy going into the final year of his deal to walk him to the door or to depreciate his value to the point where you get to the February trade deadline and you can't move him for anything meaningful would be an utter failure and disaster. I think, and I've been saying this all along, nobody wanted to listen. A year ago, everybody, it's crazy how things have turned with this franchise because a year ago at this time, if you would have even suggested, remotely suggested that you were opposed to Nick Nurse as a coach, you would have been thrown out on the street and you would have said people would have laughed you out of the building. If you would have questioned the front office, people would have laughed you out of the building. But now here we are where things are starting to snowball. These decisions that have, as Aaron put it, kicked down the road are starting to come back and bite them a little bit and starting to haunt them. I think it would be irresponsible for them to not make a decision on Siakam. And certainly, same thing actually, in fact, goes for OGN and Obi in a lot of ways. Although there's a little more leverage and leeway there because he's got an option on his deal. Also because he's younger. So I can talk myself into OG. I mm-hmm. certainly can. He's younger. Siakam's 29 years old. Siakam, you have to make a decision. Is he a part of your future and your core that you think is going to win a championship here the next time around? Or is he not? If it's, if it's the answer is no, I think you got to do it. I think you got to make a decision. Now you cannot keep kicking these things down the road. I I've hated that about the front office. I think you can't get sentimental with your players. You got to make tough decisions. I completely agree. I, I think looking back on the trade deadline, that was probably the most disappointing day for the franchise in, in a very long time yep. because losing what inevitably became losing Fred Van Vliet for nothing. Now, now let me ask you this. It didn't appear at the time like there were very many opportunities to get something significant for Fred Van Vliet at the trade deadline. Say it was a second round pick or multiple second round picks. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you still would have done if you were the front office or would you have looked at what they probably thought in having Jakob Pertl be the man in the middle, something, the piece Mm -hmm. that you were missing, the piece that Nick Nurse was angling for all season long, give me a center, give me a center, (laughs) give me a center, and you never know what can happen. happen. They probably in their mind thought that they were closer to being – a team like the Miami Heat who could go on a run. Oh, which, they did believe which, that. Which I think was, uh, you know, looking back, Come on, not the best. Far-fetched. Not the best. Uh, but I, I just, I look at that and I think, you know, is that is that what you, you still would have done with Fred VanVleet? Yes, a hundred times out of a hundred. Yeah, me too. And you want to know why? They did. They got lucky with Kyle Lowry. And the fact that Kyle Lowry, the Miami Heat, he wanted to go to Miami. Miami was the destination. Everybody knew that. But Miami had no cap space. They ended up getting something for the simple fact that Miami had no room and they had to do a sign and trade. Mm -hmm. So they recouped something. But Kyle Lowry was going to do the same thing. And maybe he did them a solid little bit saying, okay, we'll do a sign and trade scenario. But Lowry was ready to walk, ready to leave, prepared to be traded. They didn't do it. They should have done that. They should have done this. 
You cannot be sentimental with players in this league, no matter what. You cannot dine off your your championship. And they've done that for the last five years, four years, whatever it's been, where they've been in that position. And I I that's that's why I just feel like it's it's again, I'll use the word irresponsible. To be in, for me to see Fred Van Vliet walk out the door, the only thing that would have been worse, two things would have been worse. One, Fred and Jakob Pertle would have walked out the door for nothing after you just traded two first round picks. <laughs> yeah, that would have been or really bad. They would have mm-hmm. gave Fred the money. And that would have been worse because you're stuck where you were the whole time, the murky middle. So I'm okay with the Pertle resign. You wonder why? Because market value tells you that was a very, very good deal for them. They actually did well. Dylan Brooks is getting paid the same amount of money as Jakob Pertle. And Pertle is far more impactful in his role than Dylan Brooks is in his role with the Houston Rockets. So on, on balance, I like that move. But when it comes to where they currently are, you cannot, nobody can ever spin this to me any differently. With or without Fred Van Vliet on their roster in the final 20 plus games of the season, whatever it was, it would have made no difference. You were a play-in team, yep. the last play-in team, whatever it was, ninth seed. It doesn't, there's not much change there. Like, what are we losing, right? What are we, let's let's not be delusional about where they are. They're in the middle. They're stuck. And if you want to get back to a championship level, you got to make difficult decisions. This is the first time that I can really remember the spotlight being on the front office. Like that, that's just where we are here. Like finally, uh, after all this time, the believe in Messiah, everyone always believed in Messiah and, uh, believed in Bobby to some extent as well. And now you sit here and the reasons for hope are dwindling because they're making the same decisions over and over and over again. And you need to sort of find something with this team to latch onto to give you reason to believe. And Scotty Barnes is one and we will see, but he didn't take the step that many people thought he was going to take in his sophomore year. Then you look at the Pascal situation. Well, Yes, he's a really good player, but his future is extremely murky. So what have they addressed? Grady Dick isn't going to move the needle in terms of bringing you up a notch from where you were a season ago. You're right. They are still a play-in team at this very point in time. If they think they're better than that, then you got a real situation on your hands because you're overvaluing your team. You're going to be right back in the same spot where you were last year, and the pressure is going to mount even more on this front office than it already is because, it's, frankly, it's getting ugly at this point, and I didn't think we would ever get here in the Masai Ujiri era, but it is where we are because it's been move after move after move that has kind of left you scratching your head. Agreed. Uh, Let's do something to chew on. It's time for something to chew on, brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. You like that, Jesse? The yum, yeah. yum, yum? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Hungry now. Yum, 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 There it is. There's Gunner. He's on tomorrow. Well, you'll have Gunner and Sam McKee tomorrow. Um, well, Aaron brought up Fred. You brought up Fred Van Vliet with Aaron in, yeah. in our conversation there. Wanted to play one of the clips. It was from the Pivot podcast. It was him talking about some of the turmoil that the Raptors experienced last yep. season. Here it is. Were you and Pascal Siakam starting shit, starting beef with the team? Did y'all were frustrated with the roster with something else I saw? No, I think that any like anything is blown out of proportion. Um, and the thing about nowadays, if you don't speak to a rumor, it becomes true. So what I will say is for a team that have been, I don't know the exact number, at least one of the top three winningest teams in the decade from 2010 to 2020, the Raptors, Having a season that we had with a team that had just got to the fifth seed the year before, it was a letdown for everybody. 
And just the same way when you win a championship and everybody level raises and everybody gets paid and everybody wins accolades, when you, when you underperform, it's the same. Wow. The coach gets fired. Yep. Your starter point guard is no longer there. Your best player on the team is now on the you know, trade rumors every day. So it goes hand in hand. There's a, there was a mix of guys that have been there, new guys trying to prove themselves. It didn't work out. It wasn't a great fit for whatever reason. The chemistry didn't click, and that's probably the most I can say about that. But yeah. to those stories that's coming out, I mean, I can't do nothing about that. I can't. I still got a great relationship with everybody that was there. If there was any issues with me personally, they was never addressed personally. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting that he referenced in there. He just casually throws it. Well, you lose your starting point guard. Yeah, like yeah, buddy, you had a choice. You made that decision. But anyway, there's a lot of interesting nuggets in there, and and there's some. I think there's a lot of truth. I think to his point, the culture was rotten. That's what I think. Every move that has been made signals the culture was rotten. Bottom line. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. I, I think when you look at the atmosphere surrounding this team, the, yeah, the culture wasn't good. But it's very hard to have a positive culture when you're losing. Right. That that's just the reality. Winning, everybody seems to get along, and when you're losing, everybody seems to hate each other. And that's what it felt like with the Toronto Raptors. And it was a level of losing that they hadn't experienced in quite some time. And I think the fall from Pascal and Fred being on a championship team and then seeing the deterioration of that, that probably is very difficult to live through, right? They were there for the, the incredible moments. Mm -hmm. They were there for the parade when you couldn't move because it was so packed. They saw the heights that this organization got to. They were responsible for the heights that they got to. But then just a few years later, you're back in this spot where you're trudging through the slop of an NBA season, loss after loss after loss, and I think it wears on you. This team has been through a lot since the championship. They had the the bubble, the the tank in Tampa, right? Yep. They they have been through a lot now. And I think when you when you go through that and you've been at one peak and now you're at the bottom, that can be difficult. Hundred percent. And you know what? Fact though is they were part of the problem. They're they're part of the reason why the Raptors are in the position they're in. And no the doubt. Raptors invested in those guys. They tried to believe in the court. Didn't pan out. Let's take a break. Well, when we come back, winners and losers, a Monday staple here on the Fan Morning Show, Danielle Fracheski, Jesse Rubinoff, winners and losers after the break. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkers Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like I can't miss on this one. I got to make sure we execute to the best of our abilities, given the song we just got played into. For people on the podcast, I can't say his name, but my goodness, it's one of my favorites. One of my favorite professional wrestlers in the world. Are you much of a wrestling guy, Jesse? He used to be when I was a kid. Okay, so you might not be familiar with this one then. Who is it? Can't I can't say, say his name. It. I can't say it. Okay, fine. I can't. Fair enough. He, he who shall not be named, unfortunately. Okay. okay? okay. But no my problem. God, is he ever the devil. He is the devil. Let's just say that. All right. I wanted to mix in a couple texts before we get into winners and losers this morning. People chiming in from earlier in the show when we were talking about the Blue Jays and said, hey, one word. Give us one word to describe that first half of the Toronto Blue Jays. Allison from Toronto, exasperating. Mm -hmm. That's that a, good, a word. good word. Yeah, that is a good word. Should have thought of that one. <laughs> Anonymous, <laughs> underachieving. 
very common. I think there's a lot of that too. There's an element of that for sure. feels like they've so underachieved weird. in a lot of ways. Brian from Toronto, frustrating. Yep. And Chris from Milton, stressful. It's very, it, it can be stressful. I'm sorry, hold on. This team is in a playoff spot. It I know. <laughs> Listen to the words you just said. It's crazy. Exasperating, underachieving, frustrating, stressful. They're <laughs> on pace for 89 wins and they're currently in a playoff spot. Yep. Uh, keep those coming. Um, That's amazing. 590-590. One word to describe the Jays' first half leading into the All-Star break. Please do. Um, be sure to chime in, and we'll continue to read them and um, mix them in throughout the show. Winners and losers, Monday staple. We do this every Monday where we just run through some of our biggest winners and losers from the weekend. Mm. I'll, as as we're, I mean, we're both guest hosting here, but I feel more a part of the show because I produce it on a daily basis. I'll let you start, Jesse. Why don't you start us off with one of your winners and losers? You can pick whichever direction you want to go if you want to start positive or negative. Up to you. Hmm. Well, coming off those uh, words that were texted in for the Jays, why don't we uh, <laughs> swing it over to the positive side? Uh, winners, I'll go Ellie De La Cruz. Oh. Okay, this guy is ridiculous. <laughs> so what he did over the weekend, a base hit, then still second, third, and home in a span of two pitches. I mean, we're kind of blessed as baseball fans over the last number of years. We had the introduction of Shohei Otani into the majors. Now you have Ellie De La Cruz, O'Neill Cruz last year. There is an influx of young talent in mm -hmm. this league now that I think you always sort of have good young prospects. The media will always find it, will always turn over those rocks, but they don't always pan out. It certainly seems like Ellie De La Cruz is someone that's going to stick around for quite some time. He's batting 328. He's the only player in MLB history with 40 hits and 15 stolen bases in his first 30 games. That's from ESPN Stats and Info. So this guy has been electrifying. He's the type of guy that turns casual fans into baseball fans, and it's been good to see the Reds have some relevancy. He's a big part why. If I think about one word to describe, Ellie De La Cruz. It's electric. Yes. The guy ridiculous. is electric. I loved last week he had the incident with the knob on his bat, hits the homer and starts pointing Point at the it. Bat. Incredible. I, I love him. I think he's just phenomenal. It's great for the game. And we've been spoiled with all these guys coming in over the last few years. The influx of young talent. It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. And look at even just how many this year in particular, how many of these top prospects are coming in? Like Colton Cowser just came up for, for the Orioles. Gunnar Henderson, who came up late last year, now in his first full season. Like, there's just so much to look forward to. Corbin Carroll as a rookie, another guy having a remarkable season. Um, it's great for baseball in terms of the youth movement. I love seeing it. I'm going to go with the loser. I'll, I'll flip it. We'll go. I'll, I'll go with the loser to alternate. Formula One. I'm a big F1 guy. I love F1. I watch Formula One religiously. Max Verstappen just won his sixth race in a row, 11 straight for Red Bull. They're tied now for the longest win streak in Formula One history. And they're doing this. They're doing this by absolutely crushing everybody mm -hmm. routinely finishing 10, 15, 20 seconds up the road yesterday. Now the, the margin was, I think like three and a half, four seconds over Lando Norris. Good for McLaren. They're a winner. They deserve it. They, they turned things around a little bit and had a ter terrific result at their home Grand Prix yesterday, but it's a loser because I hate the lack of parity. And I know we just, and this is the problem. We just went through an era where Lewis Hamilton did this routinely year after year after year. And now we're in another era where it's the Red Bull era and it's their reign of dominance. And they're not, never mind, like at least with Lewis, we got the occasional week here and there where they didn't win. <laughs> this is every week. Mark it down in pen. 
Max Verstappen, Max for Max Verstappen, Max Verstappen. I just, I, to me, it's a loss and it sucks. There's 12 races left. He can, he can, he doesn't have to win it. I saw this stat. Saw, yeah. Does not have to yeah. win another race in order to win the driver's championship. There are 12 races to go. If he finished P2 the rest of the way, he'd win. It's crazy. He has a 99 point lead over his teammate, Sergio yeah. Checo Perez, and a 118 point lead over Fernando Alonso, who's in third. I, I think what, hardcore F1 fans would probably say to us. And granted, I was a more of a casual F1 fan before drive to survive and drive. I'm one of the converted really. <laughs> uh, I was a fan of Lewis and Michael Schumacher, yep. and the greats. I mm-hmm. kept an eye on it, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't watch every Sunday. Uh, but now <laughs> you look at it and as a casual, you're starting to lose interest because like, you know, what's going to happen all the time. But the yep. heart, what the hardcore would say is there's other battles that you have to pay attention to. There's battles sure. in the midfield that are ongoing. The improvement throughout the season of Mercedes is something to watch. Why can't Ferrari figure it out? Fernando Alonso has been incredible. So if you can sort of n- not, if you just take it for granted and you say, okay, I get it that Max Verstappen and Red Bull are that good. But there are other storylines here that I can pay attention to where I can get my enjoyment from F1. Not everybody can do that because it's something that you got to dig a little bit deeper into. But nonetheless, the opportunity is there to still enjoy F1, I think. Agreed. Winner or loser, what do you got next? Loser. I'm going with, this is not sports, but I'm going with people who work in social media with the oh. addition of threads. Oh, yes. Like, do you have a threads? How do you, I do have a threads. Nah. I download. I haven't it. jumped it, on. You haven't done it yet. No. Guys behind the glass got threads now. Yeah. Everybody. I know yeah, Josh did the last week too. It's too easy oh, to Armin's sign up. Thumbs down. I'm with you, Armin. Let's it's go. too easy to sign up, right? So Instagram will prompt you, and then you have to download an, an app, which takes two seconds, and then boom, your threads is is a go. But if you're working in social media, this is yet another avenue, another thing that you have to post on. Like, it's getting ridiculous. <laughs> you got Twitter now, yep. Instagram, threads, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube. <laughs> and it's always the same post. It's like, how yes. do you, you have to remember to do this checklist of different things? It's becoming exhausting. It's too much. When I was on Tim and Friends, work with the digital mm-hmm. team, there was a lot that goes into it. You need For multiple sure. people yes. to control those accounts. And now there's yet another one. The interesting thing with threads is that it's, very similar to Twitter. So I wonder how it's actually going to work. I think the thing that TikTok did that was really smart not to completely change this into a social media conversation, but people work here, work in social media. So it applies. TikTok was at least a little bit different in what it gave you. Threads is basically the exact same thing as Twitter. So I'll be interested to see how it works out. But I feel for social media people who have yet another thing they got to post on. It's the war between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Get them in the cage Get at the them Coliseum. In the t- Let them settle it. Who? Which brand survives? Let them settle it in an octagon. Who would you take? Why not? Who would you take Ooh, wow. right now? Like e- Elon's obviously Elon. much bigger. Elon. Like he's much, much yeah, bigger. Yeah, I think I'd go Elon. He's probably got 50 pounds on him yeah. at least. That guy, you know what? The bad, he always, I mean, bad guys always win. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Zuckerberg is he, he is like, he's extraordinarily fit at this current point in time. That's and now he's like, his mixed martial arts is, he's really honing in on that. Hmm. So Interesting. Uh, okay. I don't know. I, Handicapping I it would be interesting. I, I like suck. it. Yeah. Okay. That'd be, no, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, all right. I'm going to go with a winner. All right, we we hear this term a lot in sports, not just basketball. This, this clip pertains to basketball, but in sports a lot. Dog, everybody says like, you got that dog in you, yeah, right? Yeah. Jerry West says, "Hold my beer." That's who I am, but I was not afraid. And today, there are 
again, I was getting at the players that are drafted today, and everyone, you know, competitive people, the word dog comes up a lot. That guy's a dog. That guy, well, I was a wolf, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I used to eat dogs. I like that. He used to eat dogs. <laughs> he used to prey on the dogs. Because when you're elite, you're not a dog. You're a wolf. You're in your own category. You're in your own realm, on your own pedestal. I love this from Jerry West. And I get, I, you know what? It's funny, too, because I feel like we use the term dog too loosely nowadays. And also, it's so misplaced and misused. Like, I remember, and, you know, you would describe a guy as a dog if he's like this hardworking, whether it's basketball, hockey, whatever, this grinder, this hardworking guy who's just going into the corners or on the basketball floor, diving for loose balls, being a pest in every way possible. And now it's just like all these guys. Oh, well, we haven't seen we haven't seen the Thompson twins play, but they're dogs. They're dogs. We haven't seen them play yet. They're dogs. So I'm I, I love this from Jerry West because let's be let's calm down here. Let's temper our expectations. Let's not anoint everybody as a dog all the way. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Did, did you watch Winning Time? The, no, uh, the no, rise of the Lakers dynasty. I did not. It was a it was a dramedy and yes. Jerry West was definitely perceived as a dog. Like he was absolutely <laughs> nuts in that series. So obviously I wasn't uh, able to watch him during his playing days, but he's the logo and he's got a reputation. And uh, certainly that adds to the legend that is Jerry West. I got one more. Okay, let's do it. One more winner for you. That's uh, Victor Wembanyama. Yes. Because this guy was walking into a situation where basically no matter what he did, he was going to be criticized. And in game one, shaky in the summer league. I think Barstool was putting out a uh, tweets and articles saying he's the biggest bust of all time, obviously <laughs> tongue in cheek, but nonetheless, he didn't have a good showing in his first game. And then has a bounce back of all bounce backs last night, 27 and 12, nine and 14 from the floor, much, much more comfortable. And for a guy that is so hyped up to have a rough start like that, he didn't let it affect him, bounced back and now you got a glimpse into just how good Victor Wembanyama can be and why he was considered probably the the best prospect coming out since LeBron James. 100%. I'm glad he had a great game yesterday. Quieted all that conversation and that doubt. And I love what he said post-game yesterday. He's like, I'm just going to take a break for a little bit here. I'm going to go away. I'm not going to be in the media. I'm just going to be go do, do my thing, come back, be ready for training camp. It just like, look, we're such the, the instant gratification society we live in. Everybody's so quick to judge, so quick to judge. And yes, he looked, he had his moments on Friday in the debut where it looked like there was some nervous, nervous energy there. It looked like he was uh, being pushed around and the, the strength was there. It was a weakness, but you know what? Just, just breathe. Relax. As Aaron Rodgers said, relax. It's funny. That's it. He had five blocks in game one, too. Yeah, Everyone he was, was like, oh, exactly. it's like, it's like that you get a taste for just how oh much he can impact the game. There's an, a, another point that I, I wanted to make yep. about Victor. He, he skipped the summer players party at town nightclub that was hosted by <laughs> a fanatic CEO, Michael Rubin, who obviously oh, yes. of white party uh, fame yep. that we got a taste for last week and the NBA players association. He didn't get the, or he declined the invitation to get his rest ahead of yesterday's game. So Victor taking summer league seriously and bounced back in a big way, probably got it because he got his rest and relaxation ahead of game two. It's been a busy, party. busy week. He had the Britney Spears incident last week too. That was no fault That's of crazy. his own, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Did, he, the video, gets, he, didn't, he didn't even know. He, did nothing. No, he, he gets thrust in a situation where he's in the spotlight for no, nothing having to do with him at all before his debut. Yeah. Tickets are selling for hundreds of dollars. People are 
hyped to see him. Chanting his name. Right? Crazy. And it's it's a tough situation to be in for a guy that's been labeled as this transcendent generational talent. And so, quite frankly, settle in. He had a great game yesterday. Last one uh, before we take a break here. Winner. Hockey weddings. Okay, Jesse? Mm. Hockey weddings. I had a little birdie tell me that Michael Bunting got married here in Toronto on Friday. Tyson Berry, who's another former Leaf, he had a wedding this weekend, too. It was in Victoria, B.C. Listen to the guest list for this wedding that Tyson Berry had, okay? Mm. Sidney Crosby, Mitch Marner, Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, <laughs> Zach Hyman, Darnell Nurse, Tyler Myers, Mike Smith, Evan Bouchard, Luke Shen, Kyle Turris. These are the big ones. Justin Bieber and Ryan Reynolds went to his oh wedding. Oh, my goodness. Likeable guy, Insane. I guess. Likeable guy. He must be. That's crazy. He must be. That's a wild list. I eh? guess all NHL weddings happen this summer because you can't get married during of the course, season. Of course, yeah. Right? Yeah, for so, sure. That's so, yeah. We, that makes no, sense. No, we, and we chatted. Who was it we had last week? We had uh, um, Kerfoot, Alex Kerfoot. And he, same thing. He's got his wedding coming up, and he was going to a wedding. So <laughs> actually he had money coming up as well. Who knows? Maybe he was in Toronto for Bunting's wedding on Friday. I don't know. Um <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, we're after the break. We're going to chat with Ben Nicholson Smith. Yeah. He was in Detroit. He got an up close look at Alec Manoa. He was there for the series, heading into the All Star break. We're going to catch up with him. Keep your text coming as well. I saw some more uh, funnel in here. One word to describe the Jays at the All Star break. That first half. How would you describe it and summarize it in one word? We're going to connect with BNS after the break. <laughs> 